focus. I think we'll make a start. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Peter Williams, who is um, going to talk to us about um, arguments for Thaisen. Um, some of you are have, you know, old hands of business, some of you may not have come across these arguments before. Um, of course, you are able, I'm sure, at the end, or perhaps Julian as well, to ask questions before we go along, but I'm sure Peter will explain that as well. So I will hand you over uh, to Peter Williams. Thank <clears throat> Thank you very much. Uh, so this is the second of two sessions that I've been doing here at school today, and some of you may have been uh, with me earlier today where we were simply looking at how arguments uh, work or can fail to work, and if you were, I hope you'll see very much how I use the structure of syllogistic arguments to lay out there for you um, my attempt at defending some of these arguments that we'll look at, uh, and you can uh, assess them on the, uh, the basis of those uh, agreed communal ground rules of argumentation. Uh, I'm going to, uh, in the, the next three quarters of an hour, try and uh, give you uh, my way of defending uh, a, a, a range of arguments that are germane to the, uh, the A-level uh, syllabus. Um, I'm a Christian as well as a philosopher. Uh, I think there are a number of good arguments for the existence of God. I'm very happy for you to disagree with me on that and to take questions at the end, and we'll have a good uh, discussion about it. Uh, just to preface my remarks, um, I want to read you a quotation from an uh, interview with a famous British philosopher called Anthony Flew, uh, who was, uh, for uh, many years, one of the, the most famous uh, atheist uh, philosophers in the country, um, but who, a number of, of years before his uh, death, uh, changed his mind uh, on the issue and you can see there uh, a copy of the, the front cover of his last book, which is called um, There Is a God, uh, with no crossed out and A penciled in over the cross there, How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. And in an interview um, he gave around the time of that book's publication, he said this. Uh, the more that, we, uh, that was discovered about the, the richness and inherent intelligence of life, the less it seemed likely that a chemical soup could magically generate the genetic code. Two noted philosophers, one an agnostic, Anthony Kenny, and the other an atheist, Thomas Nagel, who I'll mention in a moment, he says, recently pointed out that uh, Richard Dawkins has failed to address three major issues that grounded the rational case for God, as far as flu was concerned. He says, these are the same issues that had driven me to accept the existence of a God, namely uh, the laws of nature... Life, with its teleological, that is, purpose-driven uh, organisation, and the, the very existence of the universe. Uh, Thomas Nagel, whom Flew mentioned there in his interview, more recently came out uh, with a book that has uh, caused uh, a lot of discussion in the re review pages of various journals and so on. Um, this is a, a book by a very famous uh, atheist philosopher of mind from America, uh, and his book is called Mind and Cosmos, Why the Materialist Neo-Darwinian Conception of Nature is Almost Certainly False, which is a very interesting title for an atheist philosopher to give his book. And Thomas Nagel um, seems to very much echo the thoughts of Flew when he says that, in his opinion, the dominant scientific consensus faces problems of probability that I believe are not taken seriously enough 
both with respect to the evolution of life forms through accidental mutation and natural selection, and with respect to the formation from dead matter of physical systems capable of such evolution. The more we learn about the intricacy of the genetic code and its control of the chemical processes of life, the harder those problems seem. The coming into existence of the genetic code seems particularly resistant to being revealed as probable given physical law alone. So there's a recent atheist philosopher echoing uh, one of the uh, issues that uh, Anthony Flew saw as pointing towards the existence of God. And one last interesting quote from an atheist, atheist philosopher of science called Bradley Monton in his book, Seeking God in Science. Uh, Again, issues uh, flew, um, uh, echoes flew on these particular uh, issues from modern science. It says, an argument that starts from the fine-tuning of the fundamental constants, the laws of nature, an argument based on the fact that the universe began to exist and an argument based on the improbability of the naturalistic origin of life from not in life, are all somewhat plausible. Uh, I uh, agree, and yet I probably think they're slightly more plausible than he thinks they are, but it's interesting to see uh, that reflection from an atheist philosopher of science recently. So I'm going to particularly pick up on those issues where recent scientific discoveries have started feeding into the contemporary uh, philosophical debate about the existence of God, but I'll also put some, uh, some more purely sort of philosophical brackets uh, around the discussion as well. Suppose I asked you to loan me a book, uh, but you said to me, I don't have a copy of that book right now, but I'll ask my friend to lend me his copy, and then I'll lend it to you. But suppose your friend says the same thing to you, and so on. Well, surely two things should be clear. First, if this process of asking to borrow the book goes on ad infinitum, just goes on and on and on, well, then I will never get the book. And secondly, if I, if I do receive the book, then the process uh, that led to me getting it, that process of asking to borrow the book, can't have gone on ad infinitum, just eternally. Somewhere down the line of, of requests to borrow the book, someone had to have the book without having to borrow it from someone else. Well, likewise, argues Richard Pertill, think of any, any contingent reality, that is, any reality that depends upon something outside of itself for its existence. He says the same two principles apply. If the process of everything getting its existence from something else went on to infinity, then the thing in question would never have, never receive existence. And if the thing has received existence, then the process hasn't gone on to infinity. There was something that had existence without having to receive it from something else. Now, with that in mind, think of the implications of modern cosmology. Uh, Bradley Monton, atheist philosopher of science, says in his book that if the universe had a beginning, then that lends support to what's called the, the Kalam 
cosmological argument, as a causal argument for the existence of God as an explanation for the existence of the universe. If the universe has a beginning, he says, that lends support to the idea of there being a God. But recently, the atheist uh, cosmologist Alexander Vilenkin, one of the world's leading cosmologists, and he gave a lecture on this topic uh, at the conference in honour of Stephen Hawking's 70th birthday. And if you're interested in this kind of thing, you can find his lecture up on YouTube. Um, He said that all the evidence we have says that the universe had a beginning. Well, it's important to understand here that, that... The Big Bang Theory is a description of the cosmic past according to which that cosmic past is is finite in extent. Uh, Big Bang Theory isn't an explanation of the past, it's a description of it. When it comes to explaining that cosmic past, cosmologist Paul Davies, who's an agnostic, makes this observation. He says, one might consider some supernatural force as being responsible for the Big Bang, or one might prefer to regard the Big Bang as an event without a cause, either something outside the physical world or an event without a cause. But thinking about this, surely a a physical object or a physical event is by nature a contingent, a dependent kind of reality. And anything contingent is contingent upon something beyond itself. So every physical object and or event, including the first one, must have at least one cause, in the general sense of the term, outside and independent of itself. An editorial in New Scientist magazine talking about that Hawking celebration conference uh, said this, the Big Bang is now part of the furniture of modern cosmology. But many physicists have been fighting a rearguard action against it for decades, largely because of the theological overtones. If you have an instant of creation, don't you need a creator? Cosmologists thought they had a workaround. Over the years, they've tried on several different models of the universe that that dodged the need for a beginning whilst still requiring a Big Bang. Like saying, for example, well, maybe there was a Big Bang, but there was a previous Big Bang, and a previous one, there was a whole series of oscillating Big Bangs or what have you. But recent research, says New Scientist, has shot them full of holes, these alternative theories. It now seems certain that the universe did have a beginning. Without an escape clause, physicists and philosophers must finally answer a problem that's been nagging at them for the best part of 50 years. How do you get a universe complete with the laws of physics out of nothing? How do you get a universe complete with the laws of physics out of nothing? Well, the only way to get anything, or to explain anything, is to get it from something able to give it. That seems pretty obvious. And nothing, or non-being, can't do or give anything because it isn't anything. It doesn't have any properties uh, able to do or give or act in any way because it's, it's nothing, not anything. So, by definition, no physical reality can explain the existence of all physical reality and having eliminated non-being and 
physical being as possible explanations of the physical universe, the only remaining possibility is some kind of non-physical, i.e. supernatural, being. Let's put the argument into a syllogistic form. Premise one, there was a first physical event. That simply follows uh, from modern cosmology. Premise two, every physical event has a cause. Now, it's important to note here that quantum mechanics does not provide a counterexample to premise two. Um, Here's an interesting quotation from uh, a non-theist philosopher of science called David Albert in in his book on quantum mechanics and experience. He says this, uh, in the course of reviewing a book by Lawrence Krauss, who was an atheist physicist who recently published a book saying, yes, science can explain how the universe came out of nothing. Um, And uh, David Albert says this, It's a little hard to to follow, but there's a a good uh, concrete example in here that I think makes it clear. He's talking about uh, quantum mechanical theory, and he says um, these these fields in quantum mechanical theory, no less than giraffes or refrigerators or, or solar systems, are particular arrangements of elementary physical stuff. The fact that some arrangements of fields happen to correspond to the existence of particles and some don't, uh, is not a whit more mysterious than the fact that some of the possible arrangements of my fingers happen to correspond to the existence of a fist, and some arrangements of my fingers don't. So in quantum mechanical theory, we have these, these fields. Some arrangements of the fields mean that there's a particle in existence, and some of them don't. So he says the fact that within quantum mechanics, uh, physical particles can pop in and out of existence, apparently at random, uh, is not a whit more mysterious than the fact that a fist can pop in and out of existence over time as my fingers rearrange themselves, like the, the quantum mechanical fields rearranging themselves. And Albert says that none of these poppings into existence amount to anything even remotely in the neighbourhood of creation out of nothing. The, the, the apparently spontaneous appearance of a physical particle within quantum mechanics is not the appearance out of nothing of a physical something. Rather, it's the rearrangements of one type of physical reality into a different type of physical reality. So that uh, way of trying to counter premise two, which is a very popularist kind of way of trying to object to premise two, doesn't work. And if premises one and two are true, it follows that therefore the first physical event must have had a cause. Now we carry forward that conclusion... The first physical event had a cause. And just add this new premise. The cause of the first physical event can't itself have been a physical cause. When if you say, well, what caused the first physical event? And you said, well, the previous physical event. That would just make no sense. There isn't a physical event prior to the first one. Okay? But from those two premises, it follows that therefore the first physical event must have had a non-physical cause. That's the only other category it could be. And if there's a non-physical cause for the existence of all physical reality, 
well, that's a pretty important slice of what people mean by God. Let's have a look for a few minutes at the the argument from what's called cosmic fine-tuning. It's a version of the famous design argument. And to illustrate this, I've got this little video clip um, that shows an imaginary machine for the creation of universes. Suppose we had such a machine, and we, uh, we put a different dial on the machine for every law of nature that we might want to give a reality. And we had a machine that was... Uh, set up to represent the way our universe happens to be. So there's a dial for every law that we have, every constant of nature that there is, and the relative strengths, the weaknesses of these laws, like the strong nuclear force or the gravitational force, are as they are in our universe. The the thing that astonished scientists who who discovered this, what's called fine-tuning of the universe, is if you took any one of these uh, constants or laws and you just changed... Uh, the strength, the weakness, by a minute percentage. And and we're talking numbers here that are literally beyond astronomical in in their numbers. Um, And you were then to press the create a universe button. It's not that you'd get a universe, you know, slightly different from ours, but basically the same. In the vast, overwhelming majority of cases, the strange thing is that you would get a universe that, couldn't support life that probably more than that couldn't support the existence of of physical particles that may collapse so quickly um, that you never go from the high energy state of the universe into atoms or anything let alone chemistry let alone organic chemistry let alone you know intelligent life and that was a bit of a shock for the scientists who discovered this for example famous uh, Atheist uh, scientist called Fred Hoyle uh, was one of the guys who discovered one of these first instances of fine-tuning to do with the production of carbon in uh, the chemistry of stars. And he kind of complained at the time that a common-sense interpretation of the facts that he discovered suggests that a super-intellect has monkeyed with physics uh, to make life possible. Well, in light of that observation, that recognition... um, from atheist and agnostic scientists across the board, that the, the universe looks like it's a put-up job. It's interesting to note um, Professor Swinburne's principle of, uh, of when to trust things, the principle of credulity, where he argues that it's just a, a basic principle of knowledge, that you ought to take things to be the way they seem to be until you've got a reason to think you're wrong rather than the other way around. Because if you did things the other way around, you'd be completely sceptical about everything, basically, and you'd never be able to know anything or do science. Uh, So he says, actually, the rational thing to do is to take that reality is the way it seems to be until you've got evidence to show that you're wrong in that interpretation. So we could, at one level, very simply argue like this. We should take things to be the way they seem to be until we've got sufficient reason for doubt, The fine-tuning of the cosmos for life seems like it's the product of design. So we should take that fine-tuning as being the product of design until and unless we're given sufficient reason to doubt that conclusion. But if we dig a little bit deeper here, uh, American philosopher Bill Craig um, puts the fine-tuning argument like this a little bit more uh, rigorously. He says, the fine-tuning of the universe 
there's only a number of a possible small range of possible ways of explaining it. Uh, it could be due to, to physical necessity, some sort of law of nature. Maybe it's due to chance. Maybe we're just very lucky. Or maybe it's the product of design. How do we tell apart which of these different possible explanations is the most reasonable? Well, he says, obviously, if I can, if I can eliminate the, the possibilities apart from design, then by uh, elim- processes of elimination, we can rule in the design explanation. Well, here it's interesting to go to Stephen Hawking, who we mentioned earlier. In his recent book, for example, he mentions that it appears to him that that the fundamental numbers, uh, the form of the apparent laws of nature and the fine-tuning, are not demanded by logic or by physical principle. Uh, The universe really could have been different than it is, um, which rules out the physical necessity possibility. Things could have been different than they are. They didn't have to be that way. Uh, which leaves us with chance or design. How do we make that choice? Here, uh, Bill Craig uh, talks about something that's uh, within the whole field of uh, sort of statistics and design inferences and so on. He says that in addition to high improbability, there also needs to be conformity to an independently given pattern. You can't just look at something and say, oh, well, that's very unlikely, therefore it was designed. That, that just won't do. He says you have to have unlikeliness, very unlikely, and conformity to an independently given pattern. When these two elements are present, we have specified complexity, not just mere complexity, which is the tip-off to intelligent design. Example, for example, in a poker game, any deal of cards is equally and very highly improbable. But... If you find that every time a certain player deals, he gets all four aces, you can bet this is not the result of chance, but the result of design. You know, uh, one cowboy uh, cheating on the other cowboys, and the other cowboys get suspicious of him, pull their six-shooters and demand he explain himself. They're not going to be satisfied with the, the, the cheating cowboy saying, look, any deal of cards that happens is just as unlikely as any other. Well, in a sense, yes, but also the vast majority of deals of cards are not the ones that's always going to give him the the winning hand, according to the rules of the game. So, um, from our experience, we know that things with specified complexity, which is another way some people say of talking about information, that books have authors, musical scores have composers, portraits have artists, computer programs have programmers... We seem to have good reason for for inferring on the basis of our repeated experience that anything that exhibits this kind of specified complexity is the product of design. Indeed, appealing to intelligence to explain specified complexity is to appeal to a cause known from experience to be a causally adequate explanation for the data we're trying to explain, which, interestingly, is that the the rule of scientific um, inference uh, followed by Charles Lyell and, after him, Charles Darwin. Stephen Hawking again. He says, for our theoretical models of the Big Bang to work, the initial state of the universe had to be set up in a very special and highly improbable way. This is, uh, uh, in effect... Hawking's way of 
admitting that the, the universe appears to be finely tuned, that it appears to exhibit not just complexity, but specified complexity, the very uh, type of complexity, which is the, the minority of types of complexity that there could have been, which is the one that allows life to exist, um, that has that uniquely going for it, whereas all the other types of complexity, uh, well, all they'd have in common is not having life existing. So we could argue like this. Things exhibiting specified complexity are probably at least designed. Uh, the fine-tuning of the universe seems to exhibit specified complexity, and Stephen Hawking seems to agree with that premise, from which it would follow that the fine-tuning probably is the result of design. Or to go back to the way Bill Craig was initially putting it, not only can we rule out physical necessity because the universe really could have been different, but also chance doesn't seem like a good explanation uh, any more than the, the cowboys uh, facing the, uh, the cowboy who keeps cheating at poker are going to be satisfied with him saying, well, I'm just lucky. So we have a number of, of uh, we have a sort of uh, limited negative way and then a, a positive way of inferring design from the fine-tuning of the, the universe. And a very similar argument could be mounted uh, with respect to the origin of life, that issue that Anthony Flew and Thomas Nagel um, in particular were worrying about. Um, you could have exactly the same form of argument and note that, the, that life depends upon uh, functional information encoded in, in genetic and epigenetic information um, that you need to explain where did that information come from and again, on the basis of experience, where we know where large amounts of information suddenly come from, uh, we know that they come from minds. A uh, really good book to pursue on that if you're interested in that whole issue is Stephen Mayer's uh, book, Signature in the Cell. Now, the most plausible designer candidate, as it were, because you can have lots of arguments over, well, what, what more precisely might be the nature of that designer? Particularly when you're talking about, about cosmic specified complexity in the fine-tuning. Surely the most plausible designer candidate would be a non-physical and, by nature, undesigned intelligence with power over the universe. Which, again, isn't, isn't everything that people mean by God, but it's an important slice of what people mean by God. Uh, you could, for example, try and say, well, maybe it was an embodied physical designer... Um, who created life. Maybe it was aliens from Alpha Centauri. Maybe the fine-tuning of our whole universe was created by physical intelligences from another universe or something. Um, but that really just sort of pushes the problem away a step without solving it. Physical designer candidates of whatever type would surely themselves exhibit or depend upon examples of specified complexity, uh, which implies either an infinite regress of explanations uh, or the only way to avoid that infinite regress of explanation would be to posit some kind of intelligence, a designer who doesn't himself depend upon or exhibit specified complexity. And again, it's interesting to note that the traditional theological picture of God, of course, since he's conceived as being a necessary being, he can't be a being that exhibits specified complexity because for complexity, for unlikeliness, you need contingency. You need it could have been this way, but it happened to be this way 
If God exists, he exists necessarily, has a necessary nature. He couldn't have been any other way, and so isn't complex in that sense, um, which is the flaw with Richard Dawkins' main objection to this kind of design argument, where he says, any designer you mention would have to be even more complicated than the thing you're explaining, and so is no explanation at all. Well, that, that, that is to beg the question against the very possibility of the traditional theistic concept of God. It's also an argument which would make science uh, and everyday uh, rational inferences impossible. Um, you know, look at any portrait by an artist. It's a pretty complicated thing, a portrait, but is it rational to explain the portrait by reference to the artist? Obviously it is despite the fact that the artist is a lot more complicated than the portrait that they draw. Hawking's real objection to this fine-tuning argument is to say that if there were enough different universes, maybe there's lots of rolls of the dice, as it were, if there were enough different universes, then the apparent specified fine-tuning of our universe wouldn't be complex enough. Yes, it hits the pattern, but it, it wouldn't be unlikely enough to meet the criteria of specified complexity. He's really saying, premise one, if there are enough universes, then we can undermine the argument from fine-tuning. Premise two must therefore be there are enough different universes from which you can get the conclusion that our fine-tuning argument uh, doesn't work. But premise two is flashing away there because, well, that's going to be a key question, isn't it? It's not enough to object to the argument, to say, well, if, thing, if the world was a certain way, then your argument wouldn't work. That's not enough. What you need to say is the world is the way in which it would mean your argument wouldn't work. Uh, and what's the justification for thinking the world is that way? Agnostic Jim Holt notes that by, uh, since other universes are by definition not observable from our own, the burden of proof is clearly on those who want to claim that there are other universes and that they are differently tuned than ours happens to be. But as uh, Chad Meister says there in a quotation on the, the screen, there's, there's no experimental evidence in support of the many universes hypothesis. It's a bit like saying, you know, that whole thing about if you had enough monkeys and enough typewriters typing away for long enough randomly, they could, by chance, produce the works of William Shakespeare. Well, I suppose that that's true. So why is it, when I show you a book of the complete works of William Shakespeare, you all immediately think, ah, that was a book um, printed, you know, by people copying one that Shakespeare wrote the originals. Why don't you think, ah, there must be a heck of a lot of monkeys somewhere with a lot of typewriters. Now, you all immediately and intuitively go for the one author explanation in the absence of any independent evidence of the existence of an almighty number of monkeys typing away at typewriters for ages randomly. Well, it's the same with explaining the universe. I think the one designer explanation is much uh, more rational than saying, well, maybe there are a whole lot of other universes out there. Well, okay, maybe, but maybe doesn't cut it. I want some evidence that there actually are enough universes out there to undermine um, my uh, preferred explanation. 
Paul Davis, uh, who we've mentioned before, agnostic cosmologist, says that the, the, like, uh, the proverbial bump in the carpet, the popular multiverse models merely shift the problem of explanation elsewhere. Upper level from universe to, to multiverse... Uh, on any scientific multiverse model, there has to be some sort of universe-generating mechanism. The multiverse theory can't provide a complete and final explanation of why the universe is fit for life. Why is there a multiverse? Why does it produce universes that are differently tuned rather than millions of universes that are all identical? And so on. It has to have some structure to it that, that has these results that are favourable to undermining the fine-tuning argument. And if it has that structure... Why does it have that structure? That structure itself would exhibit fine-tuning. As uh, Bradley Monton says, there are problems that make the multiverse hypothesis worrisome. Um, If you've got isolated universes, it's unclear how we could have any evidence for the existence of those universes, apart from divine revelation. Um, As for for connected universes, you have to ask yourself, well, how do we get the whole physical reality that would allow one universe to produce another different one, etc., to bubble off uh, into existence? Would there not be improbable fine-tuning associated with the existence of these physical realities that that the multiverse theory points to as well? Indeed, Robin Collins uh, nails it, I think, when he says, even if some sort of uh, inflationary superstring model with many universes in it, uh, that sort of generation uh, theory exists. That theory, that, that physical reality that it's being theorized, along with the background laws and, and, and principles of physics and so on, could be said to exhibit specified complexity with just the right combination of laws and fields and so on for the production of life-permitting universes among the plethora of universes that are produced and the existence of such a system uh, suggests design. Well, finally, I said I'd bracket this with more philosophical ones, so I started out with a slightly more philosophical way of putting the cosmological argument before we then looked at cosmology, and then we looked at the fine-tuning of the Big Bang as an issue in the design argument, uh, and noticed um, uh, a similar structure to argument that could be given about the origin of life as well, and those were all issues that we saw uh, worry uh, some atheist philosophers, philosophers of science, and even uh, were issues that were enough to convince Anthony Flew to change his mind from being an atheist to being a theist. But I want to end on a more purely sort of philosophical argument by just dipping our toe into a version of what's called the moral argument for God. And it simply has two premises and a conclusion. And the first premise is this, that if a God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. Now notice, this is not making a claim about what you can know. It's making a claim about what exists in reality. It's not saying, if you don't believe in God, then you can't recognise the difference between good and evil or that you can't be a good person if you don't believe in God. It's not making that claim. It's making the claim that if there is no God who exists in reality, then it would also be the case that there are no objective moral values in reality. That is, moral values that are the kind of things that we discover to be true about reality, rather than the kind of things that we can invent or 
or that we just have a sort of common agreement, like the rules of, of a club or something. That, or, yes, we'll drive on the left-hand side of the road, uh, and we'd better all stick to that rule, because otherwise, we you know, we're going to all meet sticky ends when we're driving around. But that's just a sort of convention. It's not that that convention reflects the way that things really ought to be, as it were. And this is saying that there's no such thing as the way behaviour really ought to be, in that objective, discoverable sense, in a universe where there's no God. Interestingly enough, plenty of atheist philosophers would agree with that claim. Um, Here's the existentialist French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, who wrote this. He said, existentialists find it extremely disturbing that God no longer exists. For along with his disappearance goes the possibility of finding values in an intelligible heaven, any sort of idea of a transcendent standard of value. There would no longer be any a priori good, any good just to be discovered rather than invented by us, since there would be no infinite and perfect consciousness to conceive of them. We recognise that we can, get, we can be mistaken about moral values. Um, But we couldn't be mistaken about moral values if there's no fact of the matter. And how could there be a fact of the matter if the only consciousnesses in existence were ones that can be mistaken about what the right thing to do is? Or, more recently, the British atheist philosopher Julian Bugini, in his book Atheism, A Very Short Introduction, he says, if there's no single moral authority, and in context he clearly means no God, Then he says, we have to, in some sense, create values for ourselves. And that means that moral claims are not true or false. You may disagree with me, but you cannot say that I've made a factual error. Uh, Atheist J.L. Mackey, a famous Oxford philosopher, uh, argued like this. He said, "Um, if there are objective values, they make the existence of a God more probable than it would have been without them. He thought that it made sense to think if there were objective values, that sort of went hand in hand with the existence of a God. Thus we have a defensible argument from morality to the existence of God. But of course, Mackey's an atheist. So how does he handle that recognition? Well, here's how he handles it. He says, well, if we adopted instead a subjectivist account of morality, if we say that there aren't any objective moral values, then this problem... The problem that if you see there are objective moral values that makes God's existence more likely, that problem disappears. Of course it disappears if there are no objective moral values. But that seems quite a high price tag, as it were, to pay in order to avoid saying that there's a God, you know, um, which is really the bigger problem. Um, on the one hand, having to believe that some kind of a God exists, or on the other hand, having to believe that moral subjectivism is true, that nothing is objectively good or evil. So premise two of this argument builds upon the claim that God and objective moral values kind of stand or fall together by simply saying that objective moral values do exist. Objective moral values exist. Um, And indeed, interestingly, there are plenty of atheist philosophers who do a really good job at arguing that this premise is true. So, Kai Nielsen here, um, he's an atheist, but he says moral truisms 
are as available to me or to any atheist as they are to the believer, you can be confident of the truth of these moral utterances, they are more justified than any sceptical philosophical theory that would lead you to question them. So uh, Nielsen would say that, that obvious moral truths like the Holocaust was wrong, torturing small children for fun is wrong, it's good to love uh, family members, etc., um, are, you know, those are just obvious, whether or not you believe in a God, and any argument against their existence is surely going to be based on premises that are less obvious than the obvious existence of these moral values that we just sort of bump up across in our moral experience. Or the atheist British philosopher, Russ Schaefer-Landau, um, he says this, some moral views are better than others. Notice better, not just different from, but better than others. Despite the sincerity of the individuals, cultures and societies that endorse them, some moral views are true, others false, and my thinking them doesn't make them so. Individuals and whole societies can be seriously mistaken when it comes to morality. And the best explanation of this is that there are moral standards not of our own making. There are moral standards that we discover uh, in reality. But if this group of atheists are right to think that it's just obvious that there are objective moral values, and the other group of atheists are right to think that if there are objective moral values, there must be some kind of a god, even if they then use that to turn it on its head and to argue against the existence of objective moral values, because they're so committed to an atheistic view of things, well then there's something fundamentally wrong with the worldview of, of both those differing groups of atheists. Uh, namely, um, there's a pretty good argument here to think that atheism is false. So if God does not exist, objective moral values don't exist, but objective moral values do exist, therefore uh, God necessary for such uh, values to exist must exist. Uh, and that's uh, a version of the meta-ethical moral argument which leaves me at the end of my time Thank you.